Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome everyone. Today I'm joined by Winston Ma. Winston is the author of a new book called The Hunt for Unicorns, How Sovereign Funds Are Reshaping the Investment in the Digital Economy. Winston, welcome. Thank you, Alex. So maybe let's get a bit of a background on yourself and and your previous roles in the lead up to this book. You've written a couple of other books in in the last couple of years. Um, Can you give the audience a bit of a background there? Yeah, sure. You know, I would call myself a very much a China-US cross-border person because I was educated in both China and in the United States, and I also worked in both countries. Uh, and these days, I continue to work on cross-border investing between these two superpowers. And starting from my early years, right, you know, I was a Chinese native. I went to college in Shanghai, Fudan University for undergrad major in electronic materials. When I was at a college, I started as a science student, but then for graduate studies, I went to the law school. So I also became a Chinese lawyer. In 1997, I came to the States uh, with the scholarship from NYU Law School. I did one year master of law program, and then I passed the bar and became a US securities lawyer at Davis Polk and Wardwell in New York. Yeah, after three years, I went to B school. I got my MBA degree. I transitioned into an investment banker on the Wall Street. And I spent most of the time at JP Morgan, equity derivatives, convertibles, and ECM, equity capital markets. Until 2007, Barclays Capital hired me from JP Morgan to start the US equity business for the UK bank in New York. And two things happened in 2007. One, the financial crisis started. And second, CIC, you know, the sovereign wealth fund of China was established with fresh $200 billion to invest. So for me, it was a very easy choice. So at the beginning of 2008, I became the first group of overseas hires by CIC and I moved back to China. So with that, I spent 10 years with CIC until recently I moved back. So as I said, right, I have worked mostly between China and the US. And I also consider there's a tremendous amount of synergies between these two markets. And that's what I focus on. Let's maybe dig into some of the writings that you've done. Obviously, you've got a new book mm-hmm. out, but this is not your first book. You know, it's quite a transition mm-hmm. to be an investment banker or a securities lawyer, but to write books is something totally else. What else, you know, what was the driving factor for you to, to write this current book and your, and your prior books? The main purpose for my books is always about to cover the two superpowers, China and the US, and find ways to connect global capital with China opportunities, as well as China capital, global investing. So I became an author as early as 2006, when China launched QFU system. It's called Qualified Foreign Institutional Investors System which opened the door for foreign investors to invest in China's domestic stock market. Yeah, So I published my first book with this sensational title called Investing in China, 
opportunities in a transforming stock market. That started my side career path as an author. In, in, in more recent years, I started the book series on China's mobile internet and tech revolution, which began with 2016 book titled China's Mobile Economy. And during the last five years, I have published this book series in different languages, German, Chinese, Japanese, every year with a new update. And in 2020, I came to the fifth book titled The Digital War, how China's tech power shapes the future of AI, blockchain, and cyberspace. And from the evolution of the book titles, you can see that China's digital economy has moved beyond mobile internet into advanced digital technologies like AI, like blockchain. And at the same time, the China digital economy story is no longer a domestic story. Instead, it has global implications. And in such a way that it, it becomes so powerful that it becomes part of the digital war with global rivals. So, so these are these are the uh, books I have covered. And for today's discussion, Alex, you know, the, the Hunt for Unicorns comes at the intersection of my sovereign wealth fund background and my tech investing focus. Let's maybe go into some of these uh, the challenges that we're facing in the, in the current uh, environment. You, you've talked about the two superpowers fighting being China and the US and, you know, technology is at the heart of that. You know, who yes. holds the power in the financial markets today? Is it these sovereign funds? Are these going to be the, the driving factors in, in the financial market? Well, that's a great question to start the, today's uh, discussion, Alex. You know, for the average people, if you ask a question, who holds the power in the global capital markets? A lot of people would say the glamorous investment banks like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, right? Some would say the large asset owners like Blackstone and BlackRock. And some would say the powers are in the hedge funds like Bridgewater, Point72, and so on, right? But behind these investment banks, asset managers, and hedge funds, the sovereign funds are the asset owners, the origin of capital that drives these Wall Street players. And these sovereign funds are estimated to have collectively assets under management of more than $30 trillion. So they are certainly the movers of the market and the source of capital that drives everyday activities in the financial world. And to answer your earlier question further, part of the reason I write this book, The Hunt for Unicorns, how the sovereign funds are changing the investments in the digital economy, is because this is a group of investors that a, have a super large pool of capital, and B, they are very little understood. And C, they become more and more active in the world such that every capital markets players and others need to understand these players and their impact. We talked about US and China being the two major powers, but they're not the only large sovereign funds that are controlling a huge amount of wealth. Um, we're also seeing central banks getting involved um, in, in markets as well. How do you think about the concept of what well, I guess what we would determine as sovereign funds? How do you think about it? Yeah, in my mind, the concept of the sovereign funds can be divided into three categories. You know, one, obviously, is the investment arm of the central banks. Typically, the central banks 
manage the foreign reserve of their countries, and they tend to invest a lot in the government bonds market. Secondly, there are the government pension funds, right? They manage the pension money for their people through which they also manage a huge amount of capital. And the third part, which is the most interesting one, is the rise of the sovereign wealth funds. You know, many countries have accumulated national treasury, either through oil money, like the Middle East, or through import-export, like China and some other Asian countries. But either way, right, they want to invest these national wealth properly for the future generations. And it's, in, it's interesting to look into the China example, because China has three major sovereign funds, and they represent each of these three categories. You know, the China Central Bank oftentimes is the largest holder of the U.S. Treasury bonds. And China also has a national pension management company that provides the pension money for 1.4 billion people. And the third is China Investment Corporation, where I used to work at, serves as the sovereign wealth fund whose purpose was to manage a portion of the foreign reserve in such a way that it will increase the wealth and it will support the future generation's welfare down the road. Is it fair to say that some of the sovereign funds today have moved beyond you know, a stabilizer-style role in, in markets and are actually creating their own investing style um, of their own? Yes, absolutely, Alex. Traditionally, they're very much a passive investor group. You know, they allocate money to external managers. Occasionally, they are direct investors in the public markets, right? And, and because they're more passive, their capital is more long-term, they're viewed as the stabilizer of the capital markets. We certainly have seen that, especially during the last financial crisis, 2008. During the last 10 years, however, more and more sovereign funds have become more active and direct in their investing style. Part of the reason is to save costs because when they allocate money to external managers, they have to pay high percentage managing fee and also give out a portion of the profit. These days we see more sovereign funds develop their internal expertise and choose to invest directly by themselves. Another reason for that relating to the tech investing topic today, Alex, is their strategic development agenda. For some of the sovereign funds, they also serve as a domestic economic promotion agency. What they try to do is to invest in global industries and find a way to connect that with the domestic economic development. So therefore, they also try to get more involved in the companies they invest in and create that linkage with their home country economy. For that, they also become more active and direct investors. Are you seeing more of a, a particular style that they're looking at in terms of where they are active? You, you've sort of mentioned tech as, as one place. Are you also seeing the sovereign funds becoming more active in particular infrastructure in building in their own country or trying to uh, invest more strategically in gaining resources or gaining, in the case we, we've seen in the US, there's a lot of work being done in um, fostering the 5G network. Um, and investments that are being placed there. Are you seeing the sovereign funds investing more specifically in 
nation-building goals for technology and infrastructure? Absolutely, Alex. We have seen all the above in various funds in diverse countries. Uh, so I'll give you the historical context. During the last financial crisis, many sovereign funds put capital into the troubled Wall Street banks, like Citibank, like Morgan Stanley. And that was the sector they feel very comfortable to invest in because the sovereign funds themselves are financial institutions. Then during the last 10 years, we have seen a tremendous amount of sovereign funds capital into the infrastructure and real estate sectors. Part of the reason is because the infrastructures and the real estate provide stable cash flow projections. And the sovereign funds, especially the pensions, can use that for future liability coverage. And also, you know, the infrastructures are real estates with their stable cash flow projections are relatively easier for the sovereign funds to understand and operate. In more recent years, the sovereign funds are becoming more and more sophisticated. Their internal teams are enlarged. As such, they can comfortably move into more and more industries to look for outsized returns. For example, the tech sector, which traditionally was viewed as the furthest away from sovereign funds. But now they have developed the in-house expertise to tackle on this unique asset class in the hope for outsized returns. Another side of the story, as you mentioned, Alex, is about specific sovereign funds set up for tech investing to cover specific strategic agenda. Going back to the two superpowers and the digital war between these two countries, we have seen China put up a 30 billion US dollar semiconductor fund to invest into chips industry in order to be self-reliant from US restrictions. On the other hand, US is talking about set up a specific 5G funds to compete with Chinese players, especially Huawei. And according to the press releases, some of the funds are designed to promote research and development in 5G technologies that can be an alternative to Huawei technology. So here, the Semiconductor Fund of China, the 5G Fund of the US are more focused on the strategic agenda than the investment returns. It's interesting you mentioned that because you know there's there's some funds out there. I know GPIF in Japan, their sovereign fund, you know, was saying it's very hard to find alpha. You know, they're becoming quite passive in how they think about it. But really, what you're describing here is really a, a much more active role for these sovereign funds in terms of really addressing some global tensions that are that are you know coming up and with particular types of investments that they're looking at. So. Is it fair to say that you know this need to be more active is really trying to address maybe some broader global tensions that are out there? And, and if so, you know, US and China are two of the big players. But how do you how do you see the EU, some of their um, sovereign funds, and and also Japan in terms of what they're doing? Sure, Alex. In terms of the competition for innovation supremacy, I think the answer is yes. You know, all the countries are looking into sovereign funds as a policy tool to promote domestic research and development in order to stay as a relevant 
innovation center besides China and the U.S. You know, right now, China and the U.S. are the two main innovation centers in the digital economy. So for Europe, Japan, and even places like India, they all need to think about how to stay competitive in this digital revolution competition. So what we have seen is the EU has started talking about a potentially 100 billion sovereign funds in order to, quote unquote, cultivate our own tech champions like Alibaba, like Facebook. And Japan was reported to have set up a 6G research fund. It's not a typo. They are already thinking ahead. If they are late to the 5G competition, maybe they start early in 6G. And we will see more and more similar efforts across the world because when people look at the China-US tensions, certainly it has impact on the, on the global economy. But at the same time, I think it also gives the other countries a sense of urgency in terms of how they can be part of the future digital economy. And for many, they may view some sovereign funds set up to promote tech research and development as a important tool to achieve that policy agenda. It, it's, it's fascinating because really, when you start to look at these specific policy agendas, you're moving away from the traditional portfolio management that we've seen in, in funds because now they're really targeting particular uh, developments that they need for their country's sovereign sovereign state and, and what they need specifically for their development and for their people. Very much so. You can you can you can say that more and more funds are having multiple mandates these days. On one side, they look for ways to invest wisely for returns. At the same time, they also look for angles to achieve strategic development goals from their investments. A good example of that is the sovereign fund of Ireland. They have developed this term double bottom lines for their investment objectives. Double bottom lines means they look for the returns of their investments. At the same time, they also look at the social economic impact of their investments. I think going forward, these multiple objectives will be very common across all sovereign funds. So it's looking actually now beyond the traditional ESG that there's been a lot of work focused on and we've got obviously the UN SDGs. There's a now a more specialized almost focus for some of these funds. I, I think this will be a tremendously important topic for the sovereign funds going forward, especially in the digital economy. Now to put this into context, a lot of the sovereign funds are already very active in climate change related investments, right? Whether it's about investing into new technologies to deal with climate change or about divesting their holdings of carbon fuel. They have been very active in the climate change related investment scenes. But the digital economy is just a start for these sovereign funds. And going forward, we will see more of these ESG plays from this group. For example, the Norwegian sovereign fund with more than $1 trillion under management, holds more than 2% of every listed company in the world, in average. So you can imagine they can be very influential in voting corporate items across the world. In recent years, we have seen the Norwegian fund becoming more and more active in dealing with the issues with the tech companies, such as Google, 
such as Facebook. And I think given the digital economy is still young and a lot of the social issues, the governance issues are still undefined, these sovereign funds can play a really important role in defining the future digital economy. I'm curious because there's now obviously a lot of tension around some of these tech platforms and and the power that these tech platforms hold. Um, It's quite a contentious issue. Now, there's obviously an issue that comes alongside the governance of these sovereign funds and the transparency and how they deal uh, with with these particular tech platforms or even new technology. You know, how, how should we think about these large allocators and how they interact with, with these investments now? This is such an important question, Alex, especially in the middle of this global tensions, right? It's not only between China and the US. Essentially, you know, the future digital economy has brought a lot of hope to all nations, but it, it also, as I said before, right, br- brought a sense of urgency to many countries, especially they don't have enough resources in terms of engineers and the data. So here we're looking at a scenario that every country believes that the economic digital transformation is super important. But it is also the same time that every country is worried that their data resources will be bought by foreign sovereign funds. And here you really have this tension. On top of that, the sovereign investors as a group is often misunderstood for lack of transparency or lack of communications because a lot of the sovereign funds choose to stay very low profile. So when you combine these two things, the current AI competition and tech race is bringing more misconception to this group, to some extent, more fear about this powerful group of foreign investors. So therefore, in this market, it is really important to find more transparency among these sovereign funds. And I think the San Diego principles are a good start for them to position themselves properly in the market and uh, decrease this fear in the markets they want to invest into. It's a really challenging uh, time when you've got such large funds that are fighting with each other effectively or at least challenging each other. Um, to have the right sort of scrutiny is going to be quite difficult. You know, who looks over these people is maybe the way that that could potentially happen is that there's more collaboration between these sovereign funds, there's more partnership where they almost act as a check on each other. That, that that's really is the solution. You know, I think the partnership is the way because when you think about sovereign funds collaboration, then the sovereign fund at the domestic market essentially can serve two purposes. You know, one, they can be the deal partner, right, for foreign sovereign funds to come to this market. And when they're in the mix, it is more likely that the local regulators will find the deal to be friendly and constructive. You know, at the same time, the local sovereign fund can also serve as a risk mitigator to attract the interests of the foreign sovereign funds. So it's really a, a, a win-win in this mix right, the sovereign fund in the home market can play a really, really important role. For example, as we speak, Indonesia is setting up its sovereign fund for the first time. They do not have the most resources as the oil-rich sovereign funds or something like CIC. However, 
because Indonesia market is a very promising growth story. It, it is able to attract other sovereign funds to be part of this Indonesia sovereign fund setup. As we speak, the US DFC, Development Finance Corporation, has committed a few billions into the fund. And we are also seeing similar investments from Japan and the UAE sovereign funds. The same story is happening in Africa. In the African contest, this may be even a bigger story. You know why? Because many of the sovereign funds in Africa come from oil money, right? So when you think about that, the revenue source of the African sovereign funds are limited because the days of the oil are numbered. And secondly, they're relatively small because they do not have the same amount of resources as Middle East countries like Saudi and UAE. And the third, they're very young. You know, these are sovereign funds mostly set up after 2000. So they are still in their early years of developing their institutions. So when they look into partnerships with sovereign funds of other countries, not only they can bring in more capital into their countries, serving as this deal facilitator, at the same time, they can also learn from the global players to build up their institutions. So I really think they, there are a lot of constructive collaborations to expect, especially in the emerging markets. It's, it's a fascinating time because we, there's a lot of concern about the break between the West and the East more globally and, and global tensions. But we may see these tensions uh, start to happen between these partnerships that are happening between the large asset owners and where they choose to invest and what particular assets that they choose to partner on. That's right, Alex. Don't forget, most of the sovereign funds are coming from developing countries. However, you know, they become the powerful players in the global capital markets, just as the large financial institutions of the OECD countries. So therefore, the rise of the sovereign funds is also a rebalancing process between the emerging markets and the OECD countries. Now, if we, if we make it work, we can see more partnerships. But if it doesn't work, then we will see more tensions between East and the West. It's a, it's a very challenging time. Obviously, we, we've moved away from the hot wars and potentially there's another type of war between the, you know, the access to particular assets um, around the world. It's, it's, it's challenging. You know, as you think about your next book, I, I'm sure there's something else in your, in your mind uh, moving forward. What, what are you looking at um, for your next potential book or what are you, potentially, what are you researching today? Oh, that's a tremendously interesting question, Alex. At this moment, uh, I think the global data framework will be super important for the next stage digital economy development. You know, right now, everything is about data, right? And a part of the reason, for example, TikTok in the U.S. is asked to be divested into U.S. players. It is because TikTok, as a Chinese company, holds a large number of U.S. users' data. So when we think about the next stage digital economy development, we cannot see that happening unless we have a global data governance framework. And don't get me wrong, right? You know, Apple in, the U- in China got to the same kind of issue because Apple has more than 100 million Chinese users. But to put this into context, as we talk about hyper-connected societies in the world, actually the data is becoming more and more fragmented. So to me, 
the global data governance framework is the most important infrastructure that we should look for in order to keep the digital economy development going forward. So therefore, I'm spending more time on this because I think at least the new Biden administration and the China government has one common enemy, that is the big tech companies. And there's a consensus that the antitrust laws need to be improved, data protection laws should be improved, and uh, market regulations should be improved to bring these big tech companies into a more reasonable context. So I do expect there will be development in this area. And this is the area that hopefully China and US can collaborate. So for my next book, I will focus on that area. It's not going to be an easy space. We're already seeing um, tensions internally, as I said, within the US, likewise with China, with some of these big tech companies. You know, just even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a huge uh, revoke of, of Facebook and particularly WhatsApp and the their change of terms of service and huge numbers of people have been moving from WhatsApp to Signal and Telegram as other systems um, because of the concerns also on, on privacy of data. And I think that will be another challenge to, to think about in terms of how willing people are to provide more and more data to these large tech companies. Absolutely, Alex. I, I, and and I for that, I think we have a, a great opening of the new decade because the last decade, the 20s, right, uh, we lived through a, a period of time that there was little regulation on the big tech. And these days, people are waking up and people are rethinking this social contract with big techs together with the governments. And here, the sovereign investors would play multiple roles. Right. They are certainly the unicorn investors, but at the same time, they are also the regulators of the unicorns. And by the time the unicorns want to travel abroad to expand into foreign countries, you know, the sovereign players have a better dialogue with the foreign markets regulators. So I think the hunt for unicorn story will continue. And in the coming decade, the sovereign players will be at the front of the tech investing world. Look, it's an incredible time, and um, particularly with such dominance from the existing tech players, the Facebooks, the Apple, the Microsoft, and so forth. Huge potential pressure coming on them, given given your comments around uh, the consistency between the Biden administration and also China in terms of their pushback. So for large investors in that space, obviously, it's something to keep a very close eye on, given the size of these companies, actually, in terms of listed markets. That's absolutely right. But, uh, you know, for everyday digital economy people, we certainly like the concept that China and the U.S. at least have one thing in common and they will regulate the big tech companies. All right. That's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Winston. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.